0: Paul's kind of making one big point, right? That's why it seems so redundant. We're like, dude, didn't you talk about this in chapter two? That'd be like someone taking one of your... Uh, letters you write to a friend or a text messages and breaking it up into chapters and go, are you still talking about this? It's like, bro, that was one text. Or like, that was one letter. That was one Facebook message. That was supposed to be one complete thought. And so uh, it, it makes a lot of sense that um, sometimes we aim to break up chapters so it's easier to find things, right? In the Old Testament, like when Jesus preaches in the synagogue, uh, he doesn't say open to Isaiah 61, even though that's where he teaches from. He says um, that, Everyone open to the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. And you had to take the scroll of Isaiah, right? Now, they didn't have scrolls individually, but that's how he told people where he was reading from. So you would take the scroll of Isaiah, you'd be like, okay, let's find that one passage, right? It took forever. So they made it simpler for us. But we don't want to make too much out of chapters and verses, right? Um, like Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter in the Bible. Psalm, one, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. And Psalm 118 is the middlemost chapter of the Bible, Right? Pretty cool, huh? God didn't do that. Like, God wasn't like, I'm going to, okay? Uh, or certain verses being like, oh, it's uh, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 65, 365. It's all about the how how we shouldn't worry every day. It's like, well, God didn't put that in there. So we don't want to read too much into, I'm, I made that section up, but we don't want to read too much into that. As such, don't look at that. Look at me. Don't look at that. Look at me. Um. So, as such, we want to make sure that we're reading it properly. So, here's what it says Mark this, he writes There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. It's going to be crazy when that happens, huh? It's going to be wild. We're going to see some weird things. Wait a minute. It's happening now. Have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way. I love that, that the, the analogy. They, they worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women. They are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, right? This, what, what better way is there to, to define our generation than drowning in knowledge and starving for truth? Those are not the same thing. The application of things that you know, truth, conviction, um, discernment, that's the beauty of life, not knowledge, right? What we're finding is that students in particular, they are—they know more facts than ever before and know less what to do with them than ever before. <laughs> they just have all of this information of um, truth. And then Paul loves to keep naming like duos of people that he doesn't like, right? And before I read 2 Timothy like, and kind of studied it, I would have said, you probably shouldn't put people on blast in letters. Now I'm not sure. It might be a biblical concept that every time you give a sermon, at least name two people that you're thinking of, right? <laughs> like, guys, we should all be self-controlled. Unlike my neighbor Jim, Jim, and uh, you in the back, right? Put your clothes on. So I don't know. Maybe that's, like a, maybe that's supposed to be some new standard that we live by, but he does it over and over again. Just as Jans and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as faith is concerned, are rejected, but they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You know, you, however, know all my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? Once again, remember, he witnessed this firsthand the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. But Paul is not saying that that is the goodness of God that's rescued me from all those things, is he? And, and he has zero conviction, right? He's writing this from a jail cell, most likely aware that he's about to be beheaded. So he's not making this point saying, you can know the presence of God because every time you come up against evil, he will deliver you from it, Right? on the last page of my wife's journal when she was in the mental health institution, in big block letters, all it says is, deliver me. That's all it says. And the answer was no. So we don't want to use this as some sort of a prescription, but rather a description of Paul's faith in the midst of suffering, but not if we are faithful to him, he will continue to deliver us from persecution, hardship, death, those kind of things. There's no promise, okay? In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, right? I I notice this a lot, and I'm not trying to be in any way critical for its own sake, but a lot of the times, even in our churches, we care so much about what the people in our neighborhood think about our church, which should we, if we're trying to witness to them? For sure, we should be of high repute, but never for the sake, never on the altar of the, the, of the preponderance of the gospel. Never for the, uh, never, we don't we never want to put the gospel on the altar of those things. Um, and so this is what it's talking about. You will be persecuted. The, the question that someone asked me one time is, um, if the world loves you, be careful, because you might not be doing Christianity right. right. The promises are real clear. The world is going to hate you. I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. You will be persecuted for my sake. The Beatitudes over and over again. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of me. And, and, And again, it's just like Donna talked about. We don't teach suffering as a normative part of the ministry experience, and we hardly ever teach hatred as part of the normal Christian experience. Now, I think some people who are just jerkwads on the internet and stuff are hated because they're jerks. That's not what the Bible says doesn't say people are going to hate you because you're rude and um, you are untimely and you are pugnacious and bombastic and ridiculous. says they're just going to hate you because your presence in their life is going to remind them of a lot of things, their own sin, their own depravity, their lack of hope. They're curious at why you lost your job and you are still singing good songs. They don't understand you. They will hate you. But as for me, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, panumastas, right? I love this, this word right here because it, it doesn't, it, it, it means inspired, but it means something bigger than that. It doesn't just mean that God Inspired the scriptures as if he was the man uh, who's writing it. They feel some kind of a, a holy inspiration, or like an artist feels inspired to draw something because they see something similar. The word pneumatos means God has exhaled the scriptures. It's the it's the hot air on your hand when you blow on it. It's you trying to get your hands warm out in the cold. God has the scriptures to his people. He's breathed them out. This is why Hebrews says that the word of God is active and living. It's not because men went, you know, it'd be a good idea. I'm inspired to write about God. It's that the very words themselves have the power, the exhale of, of, of God himself. All scripture is panumastas and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, again, when you teach on 2 Timothy again and again, you, you can find yourself getting into a cycle where you go, I don't know what new to say, which is to say, most of the time in scripture, what we said before, we need to be reminded more than we need to be taught. After today's seminar, and through what we were talking about yesterday, I made a, a, a comment in, in my seminar yesterday, which is if you study one thing in this next season to reach Gen Z, which will not be the same way that we were reached, probably personally speaking, or the way that our generation before us, before Gen Z was personally reached. But if you want to reach them, you need to have reasons for why you trust what the Bible says. Because for every time they hear you talk about the Bible says, or, uh, and this is what what someone asked me, I didn't want to talk a lot in the panel today because you guys listen to me for like forty-five minutes a night, but I love what they were talking about up there, and I love the the different advice that they were giving. And what it, what it, what it all comes down to is two things: that we know the scriptures, and that we have reasons for why the scriptures should be trusted. That is, it's that will be the harmegito that that will be the battleground, that will be the ring that this next generation has fought in. Make no mistake. Every battle you will have with false doctrine will be fought on this: Is the Bible trustworthy? Are we holding the same thing that was originally written? Why are we convinced that the Bible supersedes? And even getting to ask or getting to hear a lot of your questions yesterday after seminar and today walking around, hearing you guys asking questions, and a lot of you guys are you're tenured, you've been in this for a long time. You could do a presentation on apologetics on the history of the Bible yourself. I'm going to ask you to suffer through this with me because I also see a preponderance of young 20-somethings who are pouring into students who have to have a better answer on what you believe about certain things that goes beyond. My parents said it was a good idea. I'm pretty sure it's morally acceptable to do X, Y, and Z, or it worked for me in my life, and you should try it also. Where Oh, my clicker. I uh, Oh, that's backwards on the side. That's my fault. So I I I put a lot of this together today, and so um, because I'm teaching a class on this tomorrow night, and but I did it a day early because I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna. This is what I'm gonna share tonight. But um, when I transferred it over, some of the uh, some of the fonts and everything are missing. So go with me if it looks a little wonky. Um, But I wanna. I kind of wanna dive into this. When we say we we can't just assert. Right, uh, first or second Timothy three sixteen. We can just assert. We can just stomp our feet and say because that's the way it is um, to a non-believing or to a skeptical world, and that's particularly what our youth are. Our Gen Z are skeptical people. I talked about it yesterday. They're skeptical of you. They're skeptical of the church. They're skeptical of politics. They don't trust anyone's anything. Right? Um, they're gonna They're gonna do what they want to do, and, and and they have kind of further pulled themselves off from culture because they don't trust anyone except for the people who have shown and proven in their life to be trustworthy. We talked about this a lot yesterday in the statistics on those things. Um, But I wanna start by asking you a question, and, and what I wanna do is run through this, and then I'm also gonna give you this deck, this slide deck, and you can have it for your youth groups, you can have it for yourself. I've done the legwork, I did all the studying for it, and you can just have it. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Okay. So is the Bible the word of God? This is the real question. I think a lot of Gen Z, a lot of our youth, are willing to do what the Bible says if you could show them that God has said something to mankind. God has revealed himself to his people. And it's not just, this is what TikTok's going to tell them. TikTok theology is saying, well, did you know that the word homosexual wasn't even inserted in the Bible until 1946? And they go, So the, the so the First Corinthians chapter six, uh, Chip talked about it this morning. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. When he was reading that, I'm thinking through all of the things that a, that a non-believer or that someone in society or a secularist is going to argue with what you're saying. Well, the word homosexual wasn't in the Bible until 1946. When it talks about that, it's actually talking like about pederasty. It's not talking about uh, uh, monogamous heterosexual relationships. It, they would have a, no understanding in the first century of anyone who would have a, a, a homosexual monogamous relationship. Well, it is it really, really talking about the slaves, the way that they treated boys back then, and, and it, doesn't, it isn't applicable to here today. I, that's all that goes on in my brain because that's all I hear all the time. And the crazy thing about theology and about defending scripture is if we have a firm fixed basis on where it comes from and that it is trustworthy we might not have all those answers but at least we know that what we're studying is trustworthy it's proven itself to be trustworthy you're not going to get fooled that's like the great comfort that i have in in apologetics and doing this for so long i know i'm not going to run up with someone and this early on i was i was scared to do like debates and apologetics things and q and a nights with like the local people in the city because I was afraid someone was going to ask something and they were going to expose the falsehood of Christianity. I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt there's nothing that can do that because I tested it myself. Because the reason that I'm an apologetics guy is because this is how I came to faith because I didn't believe that God was real. I thought it was fake. I thought the church was good. I didn't think it was true. And that's where we're going to find a lot of our students. They come to your church because they think that what you're doing is good but if you actually ask them, they don't think that it's true. So it's a great place to meet people. It's great. They love moralistic ideals. They love belonging to something. They like aligning themselves with things. They think that's neat. But don't tell me to believe it's true, right? Like with, I had someone ask me this just the other day. Well, the the word homosexual didn't appear in the Bible until 1946, so I don't really think that it means that. It's like, well, the word in the Greek is arsenikoitos, which means men who bed other men. The word homosexual didn't appear in the dictionary period until a guy who was writing about sexual dysfunction did so in 1892, a German philosopher, or a uh, uh, German psychologist... He's the one who invented the word homosexual in 1892. And the fact that it then appeared in our Bibles in 1946 means there's only a period of about 55 years by which that word was first created and then appeared in our Bible. And before that, and for every generation before, that word arsenikoitas and malakoi meant the active and passive partners in a homosexual relationship. Next. But we have to, or they'll find stuff on TikTok and you'll go, "I, I don't know, I don't know but you can at least know that what you're studying and that what you're backing is a good horse. It's gonna have your back. So, um, in in my class, this is uh, two and a half hours. I'm gonna confine that into 20 minutes. Here we go. Uh, Here's a simple question. What's your name? What do you believe about murder? Good or bad? Right. It says in the Bible, it's bad to kill people. Why do you trust the Bible? You trust in God? Do you think God wrote the Bible? Both? You think God wrote the Bible? Oh, no, no. You don't think he did. So then why do you trust the Bible if man wrote it? I could write so I could write Bible if I wanted to. How come? I'm man. I don't know. Yeah, see, it's a good question, right? Uh, you think murder's wrong? How come? Um, Ten Commandments? Commandments? You think Ten Commandments are good? I don't think they're good. Who's right? God's right. You think God wrote the Ten Commandments? You do. Where'd you learn that? The Bible? Bible? You think the Bible's true? How come? You don't know why? Why? Yeah, I'm for sure putting you on the spot <laughs> in a big way. I'm so sorry about this. <laughs> Trying to make a point, and you're just like, I apologize so much. So, why do you trust the Bible? <laughs> Next question. Okay. Let me ask you the same question. Let's pretend you had all the same answers. Why do you trust the Bible? I just trust it God, through everyone. God communicate through everyone? Who told you that? The Bible, the Bible did? That's what we call a tautology, okay? And this is where you're gonna get caught is a, a tautology is a circular reason. It's believing something because that thing calls itself believable, right? And this is where you're gonna get caught, especially with students, because they're gonna ask you, why do you trust the Bible? And you're gonna say, God wrote it. They're gonna ask you, how do you know God wrote it? And you're gonna say, because the Bible says so, <laughs> right? So you're borrowing the validity of scriptures in order to validate the reason that you believe the scriptures are valid. It's, it's called reasoning in a circle, and for a lot of us, again, and it's, it's not your fault, without training, we don't really know how to get out of that. Now, you can be living your life for Christ. You can be doctrinally sound. You can do all those things and never even think about this question. I'm telling you, these are the questions that are coming down the pike. And this is what 1 Peter 3 talks about. We have to have a, a, a reasonable defense for the reason we believe what we believe, okay? So we got to do something outside of that. Here's the main areas of question. Canonicity. Why do we trust the 66 books? Are those the why are those the right ones? What about the Gospel of Thomas? What about the Gospel of Mary Magdalene? What about the Didache? What about uh, the wh- what about the 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 Gospel of Peter? What about all these other books? Why did you get rid of those? Why the sixty six that we have? Authenticity. Do we have the same things they originally wrote? It's like the game of telephone, right? If I tell you the mailman was a bad baseball player, and you everyone telephones all the way back up here, by the time it gets to him, what's he going to say? Chicken soup is good on Fridays they're going to translate it a thousand times and every time someone changes it a little bit and by the time it's done, there's, there's a, a completely different story. So you're going to tell me that for 2,000 years, that's for New Testament, for 4,500 to 6,000 years for the Old Testament depending on your dating system, you think we have a consistent message from when it was actually produced? That's the question of authenticity. Consistency. Aren't there errors in the text? Doesn't this part of scripture say X and this part of scripture say Y? The people writing it couldn't even get their story straight. Doesn't the Bible contradict itself? Reliability. Okay, these are great, but is there any historical evidence that any of these things ever happened? Right? This is like the Zeitgeist movie from a few years back that said that Jesus was not a historical figure. Do we have any proof that he actually lived, that he did what he said he was going to do? Divinity. Does the Bible feature supernatural elements? What if it's just a great book? That Why, but why would I trust it? Even if everything that's said in it, the, the witnesses are reliable, does the Bible itself validate its message by doing anything other than just being words? And then meaning, what implications come if the Bible is the word of God? These are the questions, okay? Canonicity, why these books, okay? This is really important to understand. You're gonna get asked this all the time, especially with like, um, what's that What's that movie that came out? Tom Hanks? Top Gun? Top Gun? That's so incredibly wrong. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. It's not even the right person. It's like, that moment from, <laughs> it's like that moment from Billy Madison where he says, nothing that you just said had any, was anything close to a correct answer. I award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul. Uh, who, someone said it over here. What was it called? Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code basically says, you know, mankind just came up and was like, we're going to keep these books and throw these books out. Canonicity. The, the word canon is the word for measuring stick. It, it's, it's, these are the, the texts that are approved that we believe are the inspired word of God. What are the tests for that? Let's walk through those really quick. Here's the questions that will come up. How do we know we have the word of God in these books, not others? Didn't some group of people just make these decisions? What process did they go through? And why don't we recognize those other books? The uh, the Apocrypha, um, the Gnostic Gospels. Why don't we use those? There's a reason for it. Here's the test that's used for canon. Again, sorry that the, the fonts were changed. That's my fault. But here's the three main ways that we test books in canon. And here's the first thing you need to understand. People will always make this argument that the canon of Scripture, that the 66 books didn't come into existence until a council in the third century, the council in the the fourth century, where people got together and said, let's choose which books are in and which books are out. False, completely false. Don't buy into that whatsoever, okay? In about the year 180, in the year 150, in the year 210, we already have people, we have people in the year 100, Polycarp, talking about the new testament as biblical as scriptural beyond that we also have the idea that almost every council in christian antiquity did not exist for us to get together and say what do we think about this why were councils created do you guys know councils are almost always created to refute what heresy heresy So the council of Trent and these different councils of Nicaea, they they didn't come together to go, you know what? We've never thought about which books are inspired, about which books are biblical. Let's get together and have a conversation. It was a group of people going, these are the 66 books that we've always used. And then the Martianites and other Gnostic groups were coming in and going, well, what about these? So the council got together and said, we're codifying what we already know. So the council codified what was common knowledge among the visible and invisible church of Jesus. It was not to establish the canon. It was to make sure that everyone was in complete agreement and then to seal it and say nothing else is getting in unless it passes these tests. So those tests that they used for, the, for that, those 66 books, not all, and that's, that's that part right there, the Catholicity. It doesn't mean it's Catholic-like. That word, the word Catholic means universal was it universally already used within the first century as, inspired, as the inspired word of God, right? People were taking these things and they were already talking about them as biblical. Um, when Polycarp defends the gospel of Matthew, he talks about it in terms of if anyone touches or messes with this gospel, with the Pauline literature, he says, they are to come under the curse of Deuteronomy chapter 22 of someone who changes the Old Testament mosaic uh, code. If you change what's being written in Pauline literature and you change those things, you are under the same curse as someone who changes the Old Testament Torah. So we already have people agreeing, this is Ignatius, this is, uh, like I said, it, it's Polycarp, it's, um, uh, they're talking about the Didache, they're talking about all these texts, and they're already having these discussions within 30 to 40 years of the completion of those things. Um, so w- the argument that you're going to hear is, we didn't have them, and your response is going to be, we absolutely did. This was just the council where everyone came together because heresy started to creep in and it was codifying for the, the universal church that these, this is what makes it in and nothing else. Okay, so apostolicity, the, the other test they give is, is it written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle? A sent one. Why does this matter? Because Jesus gave the authority of his message to a certain group of people. He gave them the power of uh, supernatural things, right? He gave them the ability to make people the lame, to walk the blind, to see the mute, to speak. And then he charged them with taking his message in in that part of scripture. And and then he basically blesses them and says, you are going to carry this, so then we believe that those sent ones, the apostolos, those ones are able to communicate God's actual revealed word, word to people. So post-apostolic age, we no longer believe that people have the ability because Jesus didn't send them. Now, how is Paul then, who is a contemporary of Jesus but wasn't one of the apostles, how was he able then to be a writer of scripture? Because he is considered an apostle as one that's born, what he uses the word, Strangely. I was uncommonly born. Was Paul sent with the message of Jesus? Yes. It, we just read about it the other day. On the road to Damascus, uh, Ananias, this is, or remember, it was, it was this morning, right? It, to the brokenhearted. Ananias comes in, and then Jesus commissions Paul, and with it, he gives him the authority to be able to pen these things and to write these things. And the, the gospel writers and John chapter 20, verse 21, in the, in the Pauline literature, Paul knew he was speaking on behalf of God. We talked about that the other night. And then authority. Um, there's a lot of things in the first century that are written by apostles or associates of apostles that don't talk about the redemptive plan of Jesus, right? Like if Paul makes a grocery list, he is an apostle he, it might be universally accepted as Pauline literature, but it talks nothing about the redemptive plan of God. It also has to have the power of consistency with the rest of the text, right? So like the Gospel of Thomas, some people argue for the Gospel of Thomas, and my question's always, have you ever read it? Like the passage I'm thinking about in the Gospel of Thomas, I think it's the second chapter, and he says, all women need to become men. So go, do that. And it's like, where do I even start? And like the, and then the Gnostic Gospel, like the cross is with Jesus in the tomb, and then it walks out of the tomb and it talks to the people that are standing there. This is called legendary literature. It's not the way that the Bible presents itself, it's inaccurate. So, the authority does it align with the author's other works? Who's the author? The Pneumastas of God. Does it agree with those things? There are certain parts of the Apocrypha that undo the entire Old Testament. You're like, but you can't do that, it's going to be rejected. So um, there really aren't, there, there, there really are not any, um, what's the word, argued about texts that are anywhere near close to passing these things, right? Um, do we have what they wrote has it been lost to the generations? Consistency, these are, I'm just, it's, this is a recap before we get into it. Yeah, 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 don't have time. We just don't have time, Okay. So here's, um, I think some different people pitch this in different ways. Here's the way that I would pitch it to you. If someone asks you the question, why do you trust the Bible? If there's something to memorize and then to have at least something behind it, this, is, this would be mine that I would give to you. I think it simplifies things in a way that makes sense, at least to me. Uh, so you're not arguing in a tautology. You can't go, I believe the Bible because the Bible calls itself trustworthy and you should trust the Bible because God is trustworthy and he wrote the Bible because the Bible says that God wrote the Bible. That's, a, that's circular reasoning. But we can say, I believe the Bible because it's a collection of many objective, reliable, sufficiently early eyewitness documents that have been verified by history, archaeology, and prophecy. Now, we're not saying that archaeology trumps the divine word of God. But we're saying to an unbelieving generation, we can't appeal to the most important thing to appeal to, which is, it is the tautology. We do trust the Bible because it is the very Word of God. but how do you convince someone who doesn't believe in the Word of God that it is the Word of God? We want to use other things. We want to corroborate its story. Would the Word of God be true? Would the Word of God be corroborative? Would it be falsifiable? Would it pass these tests? Yes. So we can still say that we, we hold to those things. okay? This is the Morsehap test, as what I was just talking about. Many objective, reliable, sufficiently early things verified by history, uh, archaeology and prophecy. Don't worry about that one. Many, okay, so the first thing we talk about is many. The more copies we have of a text, the better we can establish what originally said. Here's a little example. Imagine this, Bill's blue beamer hits Terry's torus. I literally do that because I forget names when I'm doing analogies. I'll be like, and then Susan, wait, what was your name? So I have to do that because then it's alliterative. So they, th- this is the collision. Bill and Terry get in a crash and they sue each other. Terry sues Bill. Bill sues Terry. Terry says, Bill ran the stop sign. Bill says, Terry ran the stop sign. And just imagine that one doesn't T-bone the other one, right? We don't even know how this would work out, but just go with me on it, okay? As a judge, what's your call? What would help you know the truth? This is how we do forensic evidence. This is how we do historical evidence. You can't prove that Jesus fed 5,000 people. Like, what would you do if I said, prove empirically that he did that? Like, find breadcrumbs from the first century in copious amounts on the shores of Galilee, Uh, like video footage of some sort from a satellite that's able to go back in time. You can't. It's like a crime scene. Unless you get it on video, you're you're really kind of stuck. So when when a detective shows up to a crime scene, they intake the evidence, they process it, and they come to a conclusion. There are some things that are very helpful for a detective when they arrive in a crime scene. This is the same thing we're looking for when we're talking about validating scripture. As a judge, what would, you, what would help you to know the truth? What would be some of the biggest things that you would want to know, assuming this didn't, this didn't get caught on video? You wanna know the truth. You wanna be a good judge and you wanna know what actually happened. We wanna know what happened in the Bible. We wanna know what happened with Jesus. What would we ask for? What would be one of the first things you'd want? Witnesses. What kind of witnesses would you want? Eyewitnesses. What kind of eyewitnesses would you want? Would you want the guys that are in the back of Bill's car? No. How come? Bias. Bias. What about the people in the back of Terry's car? Bias. Bias, right? Unless you get someone in Terry's car that goes, Terry ran the steps, sign. <laughs> then, right, it's like when you're playing football and, and the team's like, you stepped out of bounds. And I'm like, I didn't step out of bounds. And someone on my team is like, yeah, you did. So I was like, son of a gun, man, come on. It, it kills everything. When hostile people verify what happened, you go, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm SOL. I got nothing else to say, right? So we got Bill's friends, we have got Terry's friends, we have indifferent people, and then we have a group that hates Terry. <laughs> and they all watch this. With that, you are set up pretty well to understand what happened. You're gonna expect that Bill's friends blame it on Terry, you're gonna expect that Terry's friends blame it on Bill. You're gonna expect indifferent people to be uh, helpful, but not necessarily perfectly helpful, because they probably aren't too concerned with what the truth is or what's really going on. They're like, yeah, that was it. First of all, there was a red car, and you're like, no, that's not true, right? But indifferent, you still want a lot of those people. And then you got people who are hostile that hate Terry. And their witness is great if what? If they blame Bill, we love their witness because they have every reason to blame Terry, because Terry's the worst. Here's the power of many. The power of many, when we say that we have many documents that talk about the New Testament in particular, right? So the, the, the original autograph copies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, first Corinthians, Galatians, Galatians, they're all lost. Why? Because they're written on papyrus. You can't preserve a papyrus for 2,000 years. So what we want to know is we want to know, How many copies of those documents were made and how quickly from the autograph did you start making copies? When the original one was written, how long was it between the original made and the first copy being made? You can understand that that would show us there's probably less time for legend to creep in, for mistakes to creep in. And when copies were made, how many were made? The power of many is that if you get, uh, let's say people wrote this in their diary and we dug this up. 600 years later and the, their pieces, the corners of their paper and the journals had all kind of been tattered a little bit. Someone just misspelled different things but from 12 accounts we get this. Terry and the stop sign. Terry ran the top sign. Re ran the stop sign. Terry ran the stop sign. Ari ran the stop sign. Terry the stop sign. Terry the stop sign. Does anyone go, what happened here? right? No. We go, I know what happened. But when we say that the Bible is inspired and it's inerrant, we mean that it's telling truth. We're not saying that the people who wrote it always spelled every word correctly, especially because in Koine Greek, in Aramaic, almost all those languages are phonetic. You don't really have a Koine Greek spelling test. It's like pigeon English. You don't go, well, Right? That's what people always ask me. They're like, how do you spell that Greek word? Like, I don't know. We, f- we translated it from the Greek into the original one. How do you spell it? Uh, epsilon, Zeta, Yod, Kappa, right? It's like, that's how you spell it. But how do you spell it in English? It's whatever sounds like the word scubalon. It's everyone's favorite word in the New Testament because it means poop. <laughs> I consider these things rubbish, Paul says in the book of Philippians. How do you spell skubalon? However you want. There's no such thing as the English word scubalon, so you make it up. If it looks like scubalon, well, I shouldn't say, if it looks like scubalon, but if it looks like the word scubalon, then it's the word on. What are we almost positive of in these things? There was no accident. Terry ran a stop sign. What else do we know didn't happen? There was no accident, right? We throw that one out and go, homie's dumb, right? And so later, later, and no one in the first century is saying that the events of the Bible didn't take place. They might give different motivations for them, or they might say why people were confused or tricked, but they didn't say it didn't happen, okay? Uh, So here we have, when we talk about many copies, you will never go into a college classroom and read Homer's Iliad or Aristotle's Poetics or Caesar's Gaelic Wars, and your teacher stand up and go, now guys, we don't really know if Caesar existed or not. I think that this quote is, um, the law is reason free from passion, Aristotle once said. Do we know that Aristotle said that? Do, how pot convinced the way that Plato ever existed in the first place? The first time we hear about him is more than a thousand years after what he said was being passed down. And everything we know about Socrates and Plato is strictly what Aristotle wrote about Socrates and Plato. But if I put that on one of your scantrons and I said, who said the law is reason free from passion? And you sat down and you said, how likely is it that this is exactly what Aristotle said? What about through the years it's been translated and misquoted? How do we even know Aristotle was a real person? Do we know that Aristotle actually said this? What if Aristotle had a bias against uh, or for the law and against reason? What if he was actually not a passionate person? What if his mom later on came in and wrote that and put it in his name? What if people who wanted to make Aristotle sound smarter later on inserted this into it? You wouldn't hear any of these things. We take it carte blanche that Aristotle said that, and here's the proof that we have for those quotations. Aristotle's Poetics, the earliest copy from the manuscript, from the original autograph, was in 1100 AD, which is a separation of 1450 years. We only have five fragments of copies of the original text, or the, the original copies that were made. And we don't even know the corruption because there's so few copies that all disagree so much that we just take our best guess at what he's actually talking about. But you're never going to walk into a college classroom where your teacher says we're not positive Aristotle is even a historical figure, ever. Conversely, with the New Testament, the earliest complete copy of the New Testament we have is 125 AD, right? We have the Codus Vaticanus. We have the Ryland text. We have all these things that are parts, if not whole copies of the New Testament, We have fragments of parts of John that date as early as like 68 and 70 B.C. or 70 A.D. That Things that people were writing about John. There's creeds, uh, particularly like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe it is, that were being said within three to four months of Jesus being crucified and resurrected. We know these things because they've been passed down to us of first importance, that Jesus Christ died, was buried and rose again. That was being said within months of those things taking place. The time between the, the first autograph and its first copy was a period of about 30 years. And these are all, these are conservative numbers. These are allowing the more conservative people in to make those dates wider. We have 24,000 plus copies of these original things that were written. And the textual corruption, because we have so many copies, we know is within 0.5% of the original. And the mistakes that are, that are made are almost exclusively slips of the pen and spelling mistakes. The bigger things that we have, your Bible tells you we don't know exactly what's here, right? Uh, the book of John chapter 8, I think it is, or Mark chapter 8. The, the stoning of the woman caught in adultery. But it says in your text, some of the earliest manuscripts don't have this story in there. The, the apostles still believe that it was an accurate story, but that someone might have inserted it at a later point. So your Bible, like there's, there's no scandal here. Whenever your Bible isn't sure, it says we're not sure. This is what J.W. Montgomery said. To be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament is to allow all of classic antiquity to go bye-bye. If you don't allow the Bible to be true and for it to be accurate to what was originally written, you have to get rid of every historical document known to mankind because nothing's even close to how, uh, to how accurate the Bible is. So if you think it's inaccurate, you have just sawn off the, le- the, the branch that you sit on for all of history. If you're gonna be consistent. We have many objective. We wanna make sure that people given the account don't stand to profit in some way to have biases that could lead them to lie. The power of objectivity, right? Bill's friends, Terry's friends, indifferent people, right? These are still the things that we found. We have people quoting the New Testament who have no reason to push the gospel of Jesus other than to talk about what they're talking about. Extra-biblical Christian sources. These are non-gospel writers, non-apostles. They are early church fathers, and they are writing about, they are copying verbatim from the original manuscripts and from those earliest copies, and this is what you see. They're quoting passages from the Gospels, from Acts, Pauline literature, general like uh, Philemon, Hebrews, those things, and Revelation passages, and these these are the different quotations they have. The total number of these, there's 36,289 quotations of Gospels, Acts, Pauline, Literature, General, and Revelation that just people in writing to one another in correspondence that we have found and corroborated, that you can actually recreate the entire New Testament just from what they write back and forth to each other outside of a few verses in the book of Philemon if you got rid of the autograph and all extant copies of the New Testament and you just grabbed what early church fathers were writing regarding those documents, you can recreate the whole thing. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Indeed, so extensive are these citations that if all other sources of our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. Bruce Smetzger wrote that. Extra-biblical secular sources. These are the people who hate Terry. They don't like Jesus. Cornelius, Tacitus, Lucian, Flavius, Suetonius, Pliny, the younger, the younger not the elder. Thallus, uh, Philegian, uh, Meribar, Meribar, Serapian. Oh, where's the Serapian word? Oh, it's over there. This is what these historians write about who hate Jesus and the movement, but they still dictate that Jesus died at the hands of Pilate. There's a new cult called Christianity, the life and death of Jesus. Christ was the reason for the Jews' expulsion from Rome. Christians were bound not to sin. There was darkness in the death of Christ. There was an eclipse and darkness in the death of Christ, and there was calamities brought on by the deaths that occurred. If you just took extra-biblical secular sources and you reconstructed what they wrote about, here's the story that you could get. Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He, was, he, was, he lived a virtuous life. He was a wonder worker. He had a brother named James. He claimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified under pontius Pilate. An eclipse and an earthquake occurred when he died. He was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. His disciples believed that he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for this belief. Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. His disciples denied the Roman gods and worshiped Jesus as God. That sounds like the gospel, right? These are all secularists. But what about the disciples? We got to throw out what they say yeah, maybe, except for this fact, they all died. And here's what people say to me all the time. They go, well, that proves nothing because people in Islam die for their beliefs. There's a massive difference that you're missing. The disciples would have known it was false. The disciples would have known he didn't come back from the dead, which means they would have known in their heart it was all a hoax, and then they would have died for a hoax that they knew was a hoax. I believe that the Quran pitches to humankind a hoax. But do the, does an Islamic extremist believe it's a hoax? No, they believe it's true. So you, those, those, that's apples and oranges. One would know it's false, and they're getting crucified upside down, beheaded in a circus, stoned to death, hung upside down by iron hooks in his ankles. Gross. Isaiah was hung upside down and then sawed in half, starting at his crotch and going up. Thomas was spirited death in India. And I left some of the more gnarly ones out of here. And these are just the disciples. These are just people who are responsible, who are part of that. Luke is uh, hung on an on a olive tree. Everyone who stood up for what Jesus did stood to lose their life. And no one recanted. No one changed their story. It happens with my kids all the time. I got two kids who are, in, who are disagreeing with one another and I'll tell one of them, I'm like, listen, if you just tell me you didn't do it, I, you're not going to get spanked, right? Just tell me. Tell me exactly what happened. You won't get it. Or at least it'll be lesser. That, that's what I should say. If you tell me that you did it, your punishment will be lesser. And my son, Peyton, he's a truth kid. And he will stand there and go, I cannot. He's like Martin Luther. Here I stand. I can do no other. Hit me if you must. I did not do it. That always tells me he's probably innocent, right? He's going like, I know I could say that I, could say that I did it and you'd have mercy on me, but I'm not going to because that's, that's a lie. That's what these guys did. Right? This is Polycarp in front of the pro council in Rome. He worships God. He gets, the, he gets in front of the pro council. They say, Polycarp, we don't, we don't want to kill you. Just say you're not a Christian. So Polycarp says, you're not a Christian. <laughs> pro council didn't like that. They said, you mock me if you mock me. I will feed you to my beasts. Polycarp responds, bring on your beasts. To which the pro didn't like that either. If you do not fear my beast, then you will fear my flames. We will burn you at the stake, Polycarp says. You challenge me with a fire which will burn for an hour and then be extinguished and you face one that burns eternally. Yikes. Just say that God isn't real and we are going to let you go. His response was this. For 83 years, With all the dumb junk I've done, Jesus has never once denied me as his son, nor will I deny him as my father. He gets burned at the stake. People are so freaked out because he keeps preaching and smiling while he's being burned that they end up having to go and cut his head off. They said it smelled like baking bread. His rotting, his burning flesh smelled like baking bread and it freaked people out so bad they went and killed him. That's pretty cool. I want to die like that. (laughs) So is it objective? I would say so. It's as objective as you can get for people who are sympathetic to the cause. Not only that, but we also have embarrassing detail. Who found the tomb empty? Women. Women. If one of those women was raped on their way to the tomb, they couldn't give testimony in court that they were raped on the way to the tomb. They were not able to make an appeal in the appellate court. They couldn't say what was right or wrong. Women were the lowest and the marginalized. If you were writing a hoax in this culture with that level of prejudice against women, would you really come up with the conclusion that women found the tomb empty? You'd be, you'd, be, you'd be shooting yourself in the foot. Where were the disciples when Jesus was resurrected? Standing there waiting for him to come out? Hiding in a room. Guess who wrote that the disciples were hiding in a room? The disciples did. Why did they write that? Because it was true. Now, they, they absolutely are still men, right? Who wins the race to the tomb? John does. So, I was for sure hiding out, but when we did start running, <laughs> I got there first. So, it's embarrassing detail mixed with still <laughs> a lack of sanctification. Yeah, oh, yeah, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Don't you love that? The other disciples are going, John, What? <laughs> I, I mean like love the most. <laughs> uh, you guys can read that later. It's good. NT right. Reliable. Okay, look at Luke 2. The Bible is falsifiable. In those days, Caesar Augustus issues a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This is the first census put place while Quirinus was governor of Syria and everyone to his own town to register. Joseph also went to the town in Galilee, to Judea, to on the city of David, because he belonged to the house and lineage. of David went to the register. Mary, he was proud to be married to expecting a child there at the time to be baby-born. She gave her, her firstborn son, wrapped in swaddling clothes by his men, and the manger. There's then. The shepherds amazed the feelings, by the rocks brought to by night. Right? And you get it. You don't get it, but you do. You know what is that full of? Luke is a historian. He quotes twenty-two falsifiable things in the birth story before he even gets to Jesus coming out of Mary. <laughs> All of which you can go. Was there a census? Was Quirinius the governor of Syria? Is Syria an actual place? Was it customary for people to go to their hometown? Were you actually supposed to bring your family? Would it have been customary for there to be too many people at that time of the year with the census of overcrowded places so there'd be no room in the inn? It's all true. If you want it to be fake, you would write the Book of Mormon and you would say, here is, what I mean by that is they, they use ambiguous places, they use times, names, dates, and things that are all completely inaccurate and they don't ask you to check it. When they want you to to understand whether the book of Mormon is true, they ask you to do what? To read it and then pray and see if you sense what? A burning in the bosom. If you feel like it's true. Jeremiah 17 verse nine says, your heart is deceitful above all things and beyond repair. Why would you ask your heart if you think that the gospel is true, right? Jesus told people, believe the signs and the wonders, right? Your heart should absolutely be used for the worship and all those things, but it shouldn't be your dictator of what is true. That's what we have our minds for. After we've believed it with our minds, we insert it in conviction in our hearts. That's great, but whatever. This guy asked the Smithsonian Institute what he thought about the Bible and the Book of Mormon, and the response is hilarious. Albert, no, I can't. I don't have time. It's great. Just yo, know, just relax. We got to move on. You're gonna have the deck, so you can read it yourself. Uh, Pool of Siloam. This is another way that we can verify things in the scriptures, that it's reliable. It proves itself with um, historicity, archaeology, and prophecy. There wasn't a Pool of Siloam. John was using religious conceit to illustrate a point until they found it. What an unfortunate thing. Pool of Siloam. They're actually fixing that sewage line up there. They hit it. Oops, found it. Hezekiah blocked up the upper spring of Gihon and brought the water down through a tunnel on the west side of the city of David until the 19th century. People thought this was false until found it. There's an inscription in the middle of it that says, we did it. (laughs) We had to burrow through 1,500 feet of solid rock to break the siege that was around Jerusalem. And we found each other in the middle. Someone started up here and someone started at the bottom. And with no modern technology, they just started axing at the ground through solid rock and hit each other in the middle. And so what they do, they wrote an inscription and they said, this is Hezekiah's tunnel. (laughs) Really no arguing with that kind of stuff. There's the inscription. We did it. That's what it says. You can read that later. <laughs> Caiaphas, the high priest, we found his bone box. Nelson Glick, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference after 25,000 of them have been done. Sufficiently early, not enough time to create legend. Same thing, period of time between those. Therefore, great. You can read that later. Eyewitness. Good, great, power of eyewitnesses. This is great to read later. Prophecy, here's eight prophecies from the Old Testament. A guy named Hugh Ross using secular research scientists put numbers, very conservative numbers, to the odds of these things being fulfilled. And we know that people weren't able to mess with the prophecies because in 1960, we found these prophecies buried in a cave at Qumran and hadn't been touched in hundreds of years. So between the period of them being written and Jesus fulfilling everything was a period of about 2,000 years by which no one had access to these things. So we know that the prophecy wasn't touched. It wasn't changed. It wasn't morphed. It wasn't, it wasn't fixed. It, it wasn't, they didn't add divination in later. They've been buried in a cave in Qumran since the third century BC and we found it in 1964 when a goat herder threw a rock in a cave. And these are the predictions that were made and Jesus fulfilled all of these, there, or the, the Bible shows that all these things have been fulfilled. With just eight of these prophecies, it's one in 10 to the 80th power odds that those would all be fulfilled randomly, by chance. There's, there are 10 to the 80th atoms in our universe. An atom is to an orange but an orange is to planet Earth and there are 10 to the 80th power atoms in our universe. That means if you took one atom in the universe and painted it red, blindfolded yourself on a 14 billion light year across universe, and every every planet that's volumetrically deep, you wouldn't just have to find a planet and think that that red spot, that red atom is on that planet. You also have every single bit of dirt that you pick up has hundreds of thousands of atoms in it. you got to pick one, blindfolded. And if you were able to do that, you would find eight, only eight. How many prophecies were there? 2,500. So... Conservative estimates say for 1980 prophecies that odds are one in ten to the two thousandth power. There, I looked it up. There's no illustration for this, because there's no such thing as this ever being potentially possible to occur. There's not enough atom atomic particles in the universe. So our conclusion, the Bible is a collection of many objective, reliable, sufficiently early eyewitness documents, verified history, archaeology, and prophecy. You can have this, you can use it, and I think we'll end with a reading of this passage again. It says this. But as for you, in what you have learned and have become convinced of, that's what we're talking about, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the servant of God is equipped for every good work. Let's pray. God, thanks for your truth. Thank you for being a God that um, doesn't show up in time and space and then hide yourself But that you, as Romans 1 says, you have written your truth all over our creation. Would we be people who would study these things, who would understand these things to reach an unbelieving generation, a skeptical generation for your word and for your gospel? May we be good stewards of that responsibility. And you let me pray.